All right, 1 Peter 1, 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead, and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls, and obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, seeing that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Wherefore, laying aside all malice, and all guile, and hypocrisies, and envyings, and e all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. You may be seated. Around 10 years or so ago, the dairy industry that I was a part of at that time did an all-out advertising campaign and trying to uh, encourage and get Americans and really anyone to consume more dairy products. And one of the primary forms of advertisements was to uh, create billboard, billboards and uh, they uh, would get pictures of celebrities and athletes to uh, hold a partially drunk glass of milk and um, they would have these impossibly huge milk mustaches. Remember that? And they would have two words as part of the advertising campaign on most of those pictures, two words. The two words were, got milk? Remember that? In our study of First Peter, we are ready for chapter 2 and verse 1. And... Um, Last Sunday, Glenn preached here and preached a sermon on the book of Job, and uh, he had some comments about moving pretty fast, if you remember, and uh, I'm, in my interpretation, he preached the book of Job from 30,000 feet, like if you're on an airplane and you are flying across, let's say you're flying to the west, and you can kind of see uh, that must be the city of Chicago or that must be the city of Cleveland or when you're flying over the Mississippi River, you can maybe sort of see out the window and you can see the, um, the river as it uh, goes from north to south. 
Um, I've taken a little bit of a different approach to 1 Peter. We're taking a pretty much a verse-by-verse and thought-by-thought approach. It's, uh, it's like looking from the airplane, but you are looking into the town of, or the city of, let's say, Omaha, and there's a barbecue in the town of the city of Omaha, and my approach is I'm looking all the way into the restaurant and looking at the menu in that restaurant. Two different ways. I don't think one is better than the other. Therefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. I want you, first of all, to notice how this chapter begins. Now, you understand, I believe, most of us have been around long enough to know that chapters and verses were added to the Scriptures much, much later than the manuscripts were actually written. So the writers of the Bible probably wrote most of them on scrolls. And uh, somebody came along much later and decided, let's organize this thing so it makes it easier for us to find certain passages. And so they organized it somewhat by, uh, broke it down into chapters and verses and somewhat by thought. Although I would take issue on numerous or spots here and there, uh, this would be one of them. So in chapter 2, verse 1, we see the word therefore, or wherefore, it says in the King James Version. And that's a, that's a connecting word. It clearly Im- includes the previous verses. So Peter, as he writes here, is building on the thoughts that he had expressed previously. And we talked about that in the last sermon that I preached here. It's not the beginning of a thought. It's a connecting word, therefore. And I'm sure most of you are aware of that. In chapter 1, he talks at length and gives us some very, kind of a deep dive into theological terms about salvation and how we have been saved. And then he transitions like many of the New Testament writers do and talks about what our responsibility is in relation to the fact that we've been saved. So he, Peter gives us a, a um, hard-to-explain terms how we have become and, and are saved. And then he transitions to what is our responsibility in relation to that. And it's clear as we go into chapter 2 that Peter is looking back at the previous verses on chapter 1. And I had some of this in my notes the last time, uh, went over it very fast and didn't include all of what I had on that at that point. And so I felt like we would take a smaller portion this time and maybe include some of um, chapter 1 as well. The part that especially stands out to me in this set of verses and extending even into um, verses 8 and uh, uh, 7, 8 and 9, or actually I should say verse 6 and verse 8, and that is the repeated theme of the Word, the Word of God, 
the Scripture. In verse 22, he calls it the truth. I think eight times we have these terms that are used to describe the Word. The Word of truth, he says. And we've been born again as a result of our knowledge of the truth. That's how it is. The Spirit of God and the Word of God connect, sort of like in biology, there are two forces, male and female, that combine and it produces conception. Here in the spiritual sense, the Bible at numerous places tells us that when the Word of God and the Spirit of God combine, when they connect, there, we shouldn't be surprised if there's new birth. And that's what's happening here. So the Spirit of God is connecting with the Word of God and there is new birth. We have that uh, in verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. And he's talking about the Word of God. It is not some temporary thing. The Scriptures, the Bible that we hold, the Bible, the Word of God that we enjoy, is not something that is going to ever pass away. It's immortalized. It's not temporary. It is here to stay. And it is, it is our Word. It is our Scripture. It is for all generations of all time. And we're born again by this incorruptible seed, he says, by the Word of God, and he repeats the thought, which liveth and abideth forever. He's saying the same thing that he just said in a different way. And in the end of chapter 1, he says, This is the word that was preached to you. Some faithful messenger shared the word of God with you. And you allowed it to grow. If you're born again, you allowed that word to grow into your heart. You allowed it to enter. You believed it to be the truth. And it took root into your life. That seed penetrated your heart. If you're born again, the seed entered, penetrated your heart, and there is fruit as a result of that. And so that's the thought that he breaks in with in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, because of the Word of God penetrating our hearts... Because the incorruptible seed entered the soil of our hearts, here's what we're to do. And he gives us at least three things, as I see it, in verses 1 to 3. And I want to share that today as part of the sermon. In Psalm 1, the blessed man is someone who delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. Job cried out and said, I have esteemed the words of thy mouth to be more necessary than food. Jeremiah 23, 12 said, in Jeremiah 15, 16, it says, your words were found, O Lord, and I did eat them, and they were the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. Psalm 119, there are 184 references to the Word of God, to the Scripture, in one psalm, the testimonies of God, the statutes of the Lord, and so on. He says in Psalm 119, he says, Your testimonies are my delight and my counselors. God's Word was preached to us 
in chapter 1, verse 25. It gave us life. It is, like I said, the biological connection, the spiritual connection that creates new birth. And it's the incorruptible seed. It's an eternal seed, unperishable. So the seed was planted and it brought forth fruit, at least if we're born again. I think this is very much a continuation of the points that Peter brings out about the theme of salvation in chapter 1, the results of salvation. Our love for the Word is so dependent on the fact, on the part of us being enlightened. I've heard testimonies of people who read the Bible before they were born again, and they said it was kind of boring, hard to read not very um, meaningful. They uh, read it as a history book, I think John Yu has told us numerous times. And then when the light went on, when the Spirit of God entered and they looked at the Word of God, it became alive and it became a passion for them. They couldn't get enough of Bible study. They couldn't get enough of Bible reading and that sort of thing. My prayer is that we would be inspired to do the same thing. So the first result of toward God in chapter 1 is in verse 16 where we are called to holiness. And that means that we are uh, made whole or that we are complete. There's a, an aspect of holiness that implies maturity, uh, perfection, completion in the stage that we're in. We're to be holy. He says that in verse 16 of chapter 1. The second response to salvation is that, is that we love one another. And we talked about that the last time. See that ye love one another with a pure heart. And uh, that's another theme that is brought out in these passages. We have uh, loving each other purely. We have the pure word of God in verse uh, um, 2, I believe, or uh, verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 2, we have the sincere, that means the pure milk of the word. And we also have uh, purity mentioned. I'm sorry, I don't have that in my notes here. I think there's two other places in chapter 1 where pure is, or the, the idea of unfeigned or uh, genuine Genuineness is mentioned. So that third response is that we, this third response here in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, is not only toward God or in relation to what God has done, but it is toward ourselves. The responsibility that we have to crave the Word of God is the instruction here. That's the thought. Remember the old adage that says, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. And the thought is that if you eat at McDonald's all the time, you're consuming all that grease and food that's not particularly good for you, and you will become or you will receive the problems that come along with that. If you eat junk food all the time and sweets and candy, you are going to deal with the consequences of that as well. You are what you eat. 
I came across a very interesting, uh, kind of a funny um, cartoon this week. It kind of uh, cracked me up. It was a little squirrel in the psychiatrist's office, and he was laying on the downy bed. And the uh, uh, little squirrel is uh, kind of talking to the psychiatrist, and, and uh, the caption reads, uh, the, underneath it says, the squirrel says, when I learned that you are what you eat, it was then that I realized that I was nuts. I kind of like that. I want to give you three, three ways this morning to improve our spiritual growth from chapters, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And um, if you notice that it's not in chronological order, that's the way we're going to approach it here this morning for the sake of the flow of the sermon. Three, three ways to look at these verses. Be mindful, be careful, and be faithful. Pretty simple outline here this morning. The first one that we see, be mindful. That's kind of the appetizer to the meal. The appetizer is, in a meal is kind of like those of us who were at the wedding yesterday. We had easy food. It was kind of finger foods, and it was, it was tasty food. It was things that were kind of um, yeah, preparing us for what's next. And that's kind of like um, a, a side outline here this morning. Is uh, the First of all, we should be mindful. That's the appetizer. And we should be careful. That's the the junk food that we're supposed to scrape off of our plate, and we are to be faithful and eat the good food uh, in the outline here this morning, chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. First of all, let's talk about being mindful. And I want you to notice the first three words of chapter 3. It says, if so be. Some other translations use the word since. Since. Since you have tasted, if so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, it becomes a condition. It becomes a, something that is uh, subjective. I think the word if is called a subjunctive word, if I remember my English, English lessons correctly. If this is true, or since this is true, then what comes next will also be true. Sort of like eating at McDonald's will create health problems for you if that's all you eat. Or if all you eat is candy, what comes next is um, part of it. So that's how it could be translated. Since you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, or if so be that you have tasted. And I, I think it is just so neat to notice that he brings in God's graciousness. If so be, how many of us here this morning can look back at our lives and we have seen and experienced the graciousness of God? You didn't read it in a book. You didn't, you didn't um, it wasn't something that you heard in a sermon maybe even. It was something that you experienced. You tasted it. You have experienced and felt God's graciousness in your life. What a tremendous blessing that is. And if we stop and think, you know, it, we, we don't have to spend a lot of time to turn toward gratitude as we go through our lives. 
Just a simple, reflective, we can see God's hand. That's his grace, his graciousness. My mind goes to Psalm 34, verse 8, when I read this. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It has that same idea. God is gracious. As we reflect on God's graciousness, it generally it doesn't take us very long that God to understand and believe that God tastes better than sin. God's graciousness tastes and feels better than the earthly pleasures that we can have here on life. Once you've tasted him, you can become hooked, and that's how it ought to be. So now we tasted God's goodness when we came to faith. We tasted his graciousness as we went through our lives. And I, just for the sake of memory here this morning, let's think back at how it was that day that, or the night, whatever your testimony is, if you share a testimony like mine, where you said yes to Christ. Remember the, the weight that was lifted from you, the guilt that you felt, the burden that was lifted. Um, for me, I didn't have some sort of vision. I didn't have hear an audible voice from heaven. But the burden was lifted, and I felt free. And I'm sure that's shared by many of you, whatever your testimony is, where you came to realization of faith in Christ, and you appreciated and enjoyed that freedom that comes as a, as a result of God's graciousness. If so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. <clears throat> Think of how many prayers God answered for you. Think of how many times he sent a word of encouragement through a brother or a sister, a person that came alongside you. I think it's wise for us, occasionally, occasionally to reflect on the life that we had without Christ. Think about what our life would be without Christ. There's a couple of references in Scripture that talk about this. In Isaiah chapter 51, verse 1, it says that, uh, it says like this, Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord. Look unto the rock from whence you he were hewn, and to the hole of the pit from which you were digged. I think that's referring to going back to realization of what we were without Christ. Comparing what we have now with Christ as compared to what we didn't have without him. Don't get in the pit, but go to the edge and think about the mire that you were in. Think about the slop that you used to feed on. But now you're tasting his graciousness, his goodness. And that takes us to the second step here. Be careful. And we're going to verse 1. In verse 1 of chapter 2, it talks about five things that we're to avoid. And like I said, this is kind of like the junk food that we're tempted to eat. We scrape it off our plate. He says, lay it aside. This is an active word. It's a word picture in the Greek that has the idea of, of expelling it or throwing up or, or getting rid of it, have nothing to do with it. And he lists five different things here that I believe are appetite quenchers. These are things that if we eat, we will not have appetite for the truth. 
that will take away our ability to process and to utilize the good stuff. <clears throat> Be careful to avoid junk food. Lay aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envyings, and slander, or the King James Version says evil speaking. This is the junk food that shows up in our Christian lives. This is the stuff that ruins our appetite. It's, we should look at it according to this. In, in, in my interpretation of this, I think the picture is that we should see it as disgusting, like discovering hair in food or something. Or, yeah, it, it, you don't feel like eating anymore after that point. And that's, uh, that's the picture that we should have here. They spoil our appetite. Now, these five things that are named here are relational sins. And I think that's very interesting. All of these deal with our relationship with people and with others, with others around us. All of them, I think, in many ways connect to speaking or to, to saying things. And all of them, all five of these, connect themselves to lies or the untruth about what's going on. And I think we shouldn't be surprised that these come not from God, they come from Satan. He's the father of lies. It's not very hard to identify where these five sins or these five things that are named here come from. They come from Satan. They're horizontal sins. That's on this level. And it takes away our vertical relationship with, with God. You and I, as Christians, as born-again, people that have been implanted with the incorruptible seed, like we read about in, verse, in chapter 1. Um, we're to turn away from these things. Rid ourselves of these things. Go vertical instead. Lay aside. Rid yourself. It speaks of repentance or turning from and turning toward something else. <clears throat> The writer of Hebrews encouraged us to lay aside every weight. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily captures us or ensnares us. Let us run with endurance or patience the race that is set before us. And to repent, to lay aside, to rid ourselves of this means that we turn from these sins and turn toward the word of God. Like we will discover here in verse 2. How many of our problems could be resolved if we would take that counsel seriously? Sin is never without consequences. We know that. The Bible makes that very clear. In Galatians chapter 6, it says, whatever we sow, that's what we're going to reap. If you reap to the Spirit, you're going to reap spiritual benefits. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap the same. You're going to reap flesh. You're going to reap hard things. So on this list of things, first of all, we have the word malice, and that's simply another word for ill will, a desire to hurt someone with words or actions. It, can also, it carries the thought of being constantly negative or complaining. Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And malice among Christians is something that is going to quench our appetite. It's going to 
ruin our ability to process good food. And so we're called to lay that aside, scrape it off the plate, don't eat it, junk food. It's disgusting. Get it out of sight. The second word on the list is guile. That's an older word for deceit. It has the thought of being manipulative with our words. Or uh, clever hiding of some aspect of truth that we'd rather not have known to, to people around us. And the word picture here in Greek, again, uh, I remind you that Greek talks in word pictures, like some other languages do. And the word picture here is that of fishing. And I thought that was pretty neat because Peter was a fisherman. He was familiar with deceiving fish or using guile to catch fish. And that's exactly what a fisherman does. He puts a worm or a fly or some kind of bait on a hook and he tries to make it look to the fish like it's the real thing. He wants the fish not to know that there's a hook in the bait. That's where the word comes from. Peter understood that. Deceit among people, deceit in relationships, is when you play a trick in order to get your way. You're manipulating people. You're dishonest with them. Whether it's an overt lie or just kind of a little white lie that you slip where you hide aspects of the truth. Either way, deceit. It'll take away your mood for real food and for food that's beneficial for you. Third thing on the list here is hypocrisy. We're a bit more familiar with that. We, uh, hypocrisy is when you pretend to be something that you're not, or you imply or uh, demonstrate, you say one thing and you do something completely different, or you do the very thing that you spoke out against. That's hypocrisy. We see that in our lives, and we see it in the world. We see it, we're familiar with it. A hypocrite is a pretender. And the Greeks, they would often, um, do, when they did play acting or drama, they would pretend. That's that same idea. We see it in, in movies and things today, where there's a pretense made um, to the facial expression and all of that. It's, it's, it's play acting would be the, uh, the, the corresponding term. Next is the word envy. Envy is a tricky thing. It's something that we almost never hear anybody apologize for. We basically never, I don't remember specifically ever hearing a public confession in church or otherwise uh, uh, confessing the sin of envy. It, it could probably be um, considered the same thing or nearly the same thing as jealousy. I think it's maybe a little bit different. Jealousy, I think, is wanting what somebody else has. Envy, on the other hand, says, I don't have something, and so I don't want anyone else to have it either. That's, I think, more true to the word envy. And it's a slippery thing. It's something that we see at numerous places in the Bible. King Saul, for example, he saw David's fame, and he saw David's ability in war, and the, the adulation that came along with that, and the, 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 yeah, the glam that came with being a hero. And Saul didn't have that, and so he said, I don't want David to have that either. The Pharisees and the religious leaders saw the same thing with Jesus. They saw the following. They saw the crowds. And Scripture tells us that Pilate realized, there in the judgment hall, he realized 
that they had delivered Jesus for envy, the Bible says. They were not happy with the fact that Jesus had crowds and they didn't. And since they didn't have crowds, they didn't want Jesus to have the crowds either. Next on the list is evil speaking, or a, a better or more modern term would be slander. Literally, the Greek word means to speak down about someone, to talk down on someone. Gossip. It's a cheap shot in conversation where you're talking to someone. It can be, it can be done without words, actually. It can be a raised eyebrow. It can be a shoulder shrug or something like that. And it's a, it's a character assassination. It's a defamation of character where you uh, say something. Often it is... Probably most times it may not be true, but you repeat it anyway, and you talk down to that person or about that person. Either way, it's a rumor. It's a backbiting way of tearing someone's character or their reputation down. Slander. And that happens when we forget how gracious that God has been to us. The third and final point that we want to talk about here is be faithful. Be faithful to feed on the truth. Be faithful to feed on the real stuff. Look at verse 2. As newborn babies desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Newborns are a fascinating, yeah, just an amazing stage. And those of you who, um, grandchildren or children or care for newborns, you know this. There's changes virtually from day to day. For sure, in the, in the early, immediate newborn stage, there's changes from one week to the next. There's significant changes from one month to the next. It's by far the highest rate of growth in, in human um, existence. The infant stage, it's when growth happens, and they change. It's amazing. Think of it. When a baby is hungry, it instinctively, he or she, instinctively sends signals and lets you know that they are hungry. And I have never seen it where an infant, a newborn baby, is crying or indicating hunger, and you say, hmm, oh, you you know, entitled thing, you know, why, why would you, you know, you can wait. That's not how it's done. We, as parents and as loving people, caretakers, we provide milk for the newborn baby. We don't think about the selfishness that goes along with it. When a baby cries and it's hungry, we provide what it needs. And Peter uses this same metaphor to describe what he says should be our passion. The word desire could just as easily be described as passion. It's something that we want badly. It's something that we crave. It's something that we need, we want. It is important. It is imperative. It is necessary for our growth. And he says that the milk of the Word of God is what we need. That's what we need for growth. 
That's where growth comes from. That's how growth happens in the Christian life, through the Word of God, the Scriptures. And he says, like babies desire milk. That's how we're to desire the Word of God. And he adds that word sincerity. And I talked about that earlier, the purity, the genuine Word of God, the unadulterated, the unfiltered, straight Word of God, that ye may grow thereby. He's not implying, Peter is not implying, he says this, that they are babies. He's not saying, like, uh, there's two other places in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 5 where this, or a similar metaphor is used, where it describes, uh, the writer is talking about, or chiding the reader for still being on milk and not progressing to, to meat, is the, the term that's used in those two passages. Peter takes a different approach here, and he says, like newborn babies desire milk, that's how you desire the Word of God. It's a little different. He's not saying that they are immature believers. He's, in fact, saying that they are very mature. The word desire, as newborn babies desire, crave God's truth just like a baby craves milk. Desire has the idea of vigorous, intense passion. You've got to have it. On a scale of ten, 1 to 10 this morning, I ask you, what is it that you're craving? When you think of consuming the Scripture on a scale of 1 to 10, does it bring delight? Do you have desire, with 10 being the highest and 1 being the lowest? Evaluate your spiritual hunger this morning. Evaluate your appetite for the Word. Is it something that you can easily go without? And sometimes, um, yeah, if you evaluate yourself this morning, have you picked up your Bible since last Sunday? Or when's the last time that you were craving the words of Scripture? Like newborn babies desire milk. What is passion? What is this craving? What is this desire that he's talking about here? Well, let's look at it in um, more practical terms. What, what makes one student better in school than others? Or let's, let's say what makes a B student better than um, a D or some other... It's, it's often related to the desire. It has little or nothing to do with the level of intellect that a person carries. It's the working for it. It's the, the, the striving, the discipline that comes with the study. An athlete would be the same thing. I think as I evaluate and look at sports, uh, there's probably very little difference between the really good ones and the marginal ones, except it comes through the details, the craving, the passion, the desire to be good. And I think uh, sports GMs and those kinds of things, they notice this. They actually have, I think, marks for it or something like that. You want to grow? You want to grow spiritually? You want to become a better Christian, a, a more complete and mature Christian? It comes through the Word of God. It comes through that passion of understanding and familiarizing oneself with Scripture. Take away the non-truth. Take away the other things. Scrape that off your plate. Eat 
the real food. Get rid of the junk food and eat the milk of the word. Crave it like baby, a baby cries, craves milk. In his book, Don't Park Here, William Fisher writes about driving in his truck one day with his four-year-old, his four-year-old son, whose name was Byron, and he says, Byron, what do you want to be when you grow up to be a man? And his answer surprised him. Byron said, I don't want to grow up, because when I grow up, I won't be able to ride my tricycle anymore. And Mr. Fisher goes on to make an analogy there. That's sometimes how we do. We find ourselves stalemating, stagnating, because we're clinging on to the stuff of the stage right now, rather than wanting what's coming. William Fisher uh, goes on and talks about his, the, the truck that he was driving, much bigger than a tricycle, much more powerful than a tricycle, much more mature, much more um, yeah, developed way beyond a tricycle. Sometimes we're like Byron. We want the tricycle. We don't want to grow up. We don't want to do what, what is bigger and more powerful. And so now as I close, I want you to ask yourself, are you at the same place today that you were a year ago or five years ago? How is your Christian life? Are you still riding the tricycle spiritually? Are you rejecting the power and the um, blessing or the, the, f uh, the joy that comes with what's bigger and more powerful? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, <clears throat> says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. I'm just going to read it in the New Living Translation here. It says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out. It teaches us to do what is right. It is God's way of preparing us in every way, fully equipping us for every good thing that God wants to do. And that's exactly how it is. The Word, the Scriptures that we have, the Bible that we appreciate and hold in our hands, we should never take it for granted. It's given to us by God so that we can grow. So there you have it. We're giving something when we're first saved. The graciousness of God tastes so good. Well, then we can, if we're not careful, we start to feed on junk food. And it takes away our spiritual appetite. It takes us on a path that is away from what God wants us. And it's important for us to clear those plates, to push that food aside, and make room for the real stuff. Clear the plate of the horizontal junk, the relational junk, so that we can go vertical with him. And those two axes are often connected. Hopefully, my prayer is that every Christian here this morning is a growing Christian. My prayer is that we as a church, in this same way, putting this same application would be a church that is growing, that is craving the milk of the word, that we would be mature as a body, and that you individually would be mature, that you'd have this unsatisfied craving for the knowledge of God, for what comes, 
And I pray that they would never leave our lives. And, you know, it's, it's just as true. We know it to be true. Our spiritual growth is directly connected to our commitment to Scripture and the imbibing of the Scriptures to make it a part of our lives, to memorize it, to apply what we learn, and to eat it, to drink it, to make it part of who we are. Make sense? I'd like to just take this even one step further. And I, I think, I, I think, I think this. And that is, I think often we are where we are because we sort of want to be where we are. We're either a spiritual giant or a spiritual midget because that's what we've sort of chosen for ourselves. I find that pretty serious. Our growth is directly proportional to our desire. We all have access to the same stuff. We have access to the same scriptures. We have access to the same, in, in our sense here at Weavertown, we have access to the same group of people. And so we should not maybe ask the question, got milk? Maybe we should say, got salvation, got Jesus got good relationships. That's where it starts. And as I consider this scripture, I am, this passage here, I am deeply impressed with the supreme importance that Peter places on the scriptures. And I'd like to just leave that here with us today. The Bible calls itself food. It calls, it's interesting to see in scripture what the Bible says about itself. And how many times in Scripture does the Bible call itself the nourishment that we need? And how, how, much, how many times does it need to say that until we actually believe it? Sometimes children and adults have no appetite for the good stuff because they've been eating and snacking and eating sweets and junk food. My prayer is that we would lay aside attitudes and actions that hinder our appetite for the word. And we would be craving spiritual growth like the Bible tells us we should. <clears throat> for those of you who are able, I invite you to kneel as we pray. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you know all about us. And we thank you that you understand our needs. We thank you that you have created us and you're in the process of redeeming us and making a way for us. And we thank you that you, as the way maker, are giving us the, um, yeah, out externally. You've provided what we, what we need. And I pray, Lord, that we would have that inner resolve to to follow you and to do what we know is ours to do. I pray that you would create a passion and a desire in all of us to follow you and to, to allow the word of God to um, enter our minds and hearts. And I pray that it would not only um, enter us, but it would be alive like you say it is, and that it would make a difference in how we walk and how we live. 
We just uh, ask for your grace and presence and your blessing as we go. We pray through Christ. Amen.